Aloha and welcome back to the Curvy Geeky Fangirl Podcast. This is the podcast where I go over everything I've watched that is geeky and or nerd related for the week. That includes TV shows, movies, sometimes books, basically anything that I feel like I need to put an opinion on. So there's that. I'm Joe, aka the Curvy Geeky Fangirl. And as always, you can follow me on curvygeekyfangirl.com, Instagram, Twitter. I think that's it. Yeah, that's it. I don't I don't do a lot of the socials, but those those are the most. Those are the most that I do, Instagram and the Twitter. Um, I'm also the geeky half of another podcast called People of Culture that I do with Shay over there for Shay Sheree Show. You should definitely check it out if you get the chance. Uh, in this this particular podcast, though, you can find all over the place. I primarily do it through Anchor, the Anchor app, so I'm all over that. I'm also in iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and a bunch more. It's nice. And it kind of changes like week to week. So we're popping up in new places all over the place. It's pretty cool. Pretty, pretty cool. Like I said, this is going to be a weekly podcast where I recap all that stuff that I was talking about. I get heavy duty into spoilers. I ain't afraid of no spoilers. So if you haven't seen the shows I'm about to talk about or the films or or whatever it is I'm about to dive into and I give you a rundown as to what those are, please pause here, check out your shows and or films and or whatever else that you've missed out on before jumping into this conversation, especially if you hate spoilers, just to put that out there. I enjoy spoilers. I like knowing what I'm getting into. It's, I don't see it as a ruiner, but I am the in the minority on that. There's a lot more people who want that purity when they go into their things. So out of respect, that disclaimer up front and in person. So the TV and film stuff I'm going to go over. Uh, last week, I did a non-spoiler review of Avengers Infinity War. I'm going to do a quick spoiler review of Avengers Infinity War, just the points that really stood out to me for that film. I'm also going to get into DC TV that I caught for the week. I'm down to just watching Supergirl and The Flash. I have not caught up with Arrow. I I just, I don't, I don't have the time. I also don't care. It's terrible. I also don't care, but you know, maybe that'll change. It's not very off and on. So it's just going to be Supergirl and Flash. I'm going to talk about The Expanse. Oh, I'm going to touch on Into the Badlands really quick. We're about two, three episodes in right now. Um, basically, I'll probably go full in when Louis Tan is present, which is probably happening uh Sunday night, which is tonight. So, or no, Monday? I have no idea when it comes on. I watch it online. So, and it comes out at some point. That, uh, I'm also going to talk about My Hero Academia and Netflix's latest drop, which is Dear White People, Volume 2. So, all of those. So, if you haven't seen any of those, I'm about to go into them. Prepare yourself. Okay. That being said, I'm going to jump into the spoiler review for Avengers right after this. All right, so kicking it off with my spoiler, Avengers Infinity Wars, a uh, really, really quick review. So everybody's dead. Everybody's dead. <laughs> no, so apparently Thanos' whole thing was like trying to restore balance and order into the world. And I liked the attempt at creating a villain that you can kind of see the logic behind. So for whatever reason, he's very concerned with the universe's resources and be being able to really handle the life that it's creating and 
trying to keep it stable. His own planet, Titan, kind of went under because, you know, there was, I guess, mass overpopulation. So it was just draining the resources on this planet. And eventually it led to the planet's downfall. He was right about it crumbling apart. So in his twisted head, he's like, well, you know, the way to stave this off is if we kill 50% of the people that inhabit this planet, and then we'll be good. You know what I mean? We'll be great. Um, yeah, mass genocide, usually frowned upon. So I, I could see what people would be like, no, no, that, no, Thanos, we can't, we can't do that. That is not right. Um, but whatever, he's, he's not going to let that slow him down. So that being said, he is ultimately successful in this endeavor, at least up till Earth. I don't know if Earth was the last stop or Earth was just where he needed to get that last gem or what, but they made it seem like after blowing through all these other planets, trying to find the gems, he made it to Earth, got the other gems, managed to get rid of 50% of the people on Earth. But then I think he crushed that gauntlet. I think he destroyed that gauntlet and it was like, ooh, I'm done. So I don't know if that means Earth was the last planet or if he was just like, nah, this is, these are the only planets I wanted to hit. So we good. Or if the snap of the fingers meant he didn't have to travel to all those other planets now that he had all the stones. He just happened to be on Earth and he managed to finish everything because he did give that whole speech about how once he gets all this power, he just has to snap his fingers and it will be done. So that... Uh, I wondered if it was a coincidence, probably not, that all the original Avengers are standing. Cap is still up there. Iron Man is still kicking it around. Uh, Scar Scarlet Witch was not part of the originals. Uh, what is her name? Black Widow. Yeah, that's how prevalent she is in this. Black Widow is still kicking it. Hulk's still kicking it. Thor is still sticking around. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's that's almost everybody. Um, we still have War Machine. Was he part of the original Avengers? I don't know if he actually was in the Avengers film, but but he's still surviving as well. Falcon's gone. Um, so a lot of the people that I thought was going to get the fade, still around and kicking it right now. Hawkeye was nowhere to be seen. So supposedly, according to the Russo brothers, Hawkeye has a nice pivotal plot at somewhere in this. We just don't know what it is yet. So is he getting a standalone? Who knows? Who knows? All of that. But we also have Okoye and M'Baku still standing, at least by the end of that film. So we don't know if they fade to dust or if they're also part of the survivors. We didn't get to see if Shuri's still alive or if she also went dust. We for sure know T'Challa is dust. He goes to like help Okoye up and he just fades. So the panic on her face definitely was there. Um, also, also interesting, I, find, I don't know, can't even talk. I also found it interesting that we all basically got a Bruce film in this. Instead of usually we're pretty reliant on Hulk. We get Bruce intermittently, you know, through different scenes, especially when we need like long exposition or to really get like an opinion from that character. It's usually in Bruce's tone. It's not from Hulk. And in this Avengers Infinity War film, it was all Bruce. Hulk refused to come out. He came out like initially in the very, very beginning uh, with the attack on the ship with all of the other um, poor people. Thor's poor people who are all dead. Uh, them. But as soon as he lost his fight against Thanos and uh, Hemdall was able to transfer him back to Earth, he did not make another appearance at all. And they made it seem like clearly A, that Hulk is either scared or B, he's 
got wounded pride. So he doesn't want to come out because up until then, every fight he'd been gone up against, he basically won with the exception of going against the Hulkbuster with Tony Stark. But even at the end of that, once he lost that round, he decided he was just going to peace out. Like he left the planet. So many questions, some mental questions. But who knows? I don't know if this means that we're getting a, a tie into another solo Hulk film where he like really explores what's going on or what. I did like that they tied in very briefly the failed romance I try to aspire between Black Widow and Bruce Banner with with the quick, you know, hey, hey, Nat, and hey, Bruce. That was back and forth, like the shock. And Falcon's very prominent, awkward, because it was. It was for everybody. But yeah, uh, also, okay, Doctor Strange is one of the films that I did not watch as part of the Marvel lineup. Just, I had a lot of... I had a lot of issues with Doctor Strange. I understand a lot of people love Doctor Strange and they love the story that it came up with. I had not heard of Doctor Strange at all until I watched the animated version or yeah, the animated storytelling of his that Marvel put out that was on Netflix. And I did not like it. I had a huge problem with this world they created where this arrogant white doctor kind of gets thrown in the midst of all of this magic and they show such a diverse culturally diverse group of other magicians slash wizards slash whatever they're supposed to be. And they all died in this animated short, except for Strange and his, and I know in the comics he was his butler, but I guess they're trying to say like his assistant or something, Wong. I just had a lot of, a lot of things. So I did not watch it. So seeing Dr. Strange was in this film was my real first uh, viewing of him in this cinematic universe. And I got a kick out of him and Tony kind of butting heads all the time because they're basically the same person, rich white people who got even more power <laughs> thrust on them and this responsibility to kind of take care of everybody. And they're just butting heads all the time. Um, there's a whole part where he makes it a point to tell Tony that if it comes down to it, he's not giving up the stone that he's got. He's got the time stone and he basically lays it out like if it's down to you the kid meaning peter parker and this stone stone's winning like you guys are dying so like that's what he tells them but then towards you know their fight with thanos he basically gives a stone to thanos and tony's looking at him like you just told me that you're not doing that at all and just before he fades to dust after that crazy fight he looks at tony and he says this is the only way there was another part in that, like right before it, where he supposedly played out all of the scenarios that could have happened with their fight with Thanos. And out of the millions of fights that he checked out, the only one won. So a lot of people are saying that his reference to this was the only way was, this is the only way we'll win. Um, some other people are saying that, a very minute amount of people are saying that this is the only way is him kind of like getting the last say for his own sacrifice for what went down. More than likely, this was this is how we're going to win. Most, most likely. Most likely, that's what that meant. So we get that. And I definitely lost it when Tom Holland, as Peter Parker, just was distraught about being about fading away. Like, you, you see the panic in his face. Dang it, Tom Holland. That, those are the tears I was talking about last week. Apparently, he ad-libbed a lot of that. So a lot of that was just off the cuff for him. But dang it, if he didn't play me like a fiddle. 
I was just, I was in tears with his, Mr. Stark, I don't want to go. I'm so sorry, Mr. Stark. Like, I was just like, oh, not the baby. And again, even though some people felt like it was, like it was a strong moment, but they felt like some of it was taken away. Cause we know a lot of these characters that dusted coming back, they've all got sequels in the works for their solo films. So we know there's something that's going to turn the tables and have them come back. But if you're a comic book reader, you also know heroes, heroes never die and legends live forever. That is a shout out to another show. So if you're a 90s kid, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> but in comics, it's very rare that they would kill off a character for them to never, ever come back. And especially with Infinity War, there's a whole t twist in the comic book series itself. I read the trade back. Um, where they show how he's doing all this crazy stuff. And then on the other hand of that, when they start to find resolutions for things, it completely changes. So, so there's also that. So a lot of, a lot of people understand that all these characters that are gone more than likely are making their way back. Uh, but we do know that it's still going to have its casualties. So interested in seeing how that plays out, but that's, that's going to be it for my quick Avengers spoilers. And I'm going to be moving on to DC TV next. All right. So DC TV this week was actually really good. It was actually pretty good. So Supergirl, uh, as if you've been listening, I've had an on and off love since it's come back from its long break. We got a lot of filler in like the first couple of episodes back from the break. But now it feels like we're, we're finally getting into the meat of things. So uh, the biggest takeaways for me was that we finally got to meet pestilence so pestilence is the third of this trinity of world killers that are supposed to be coming out it's rain i never know what her name is purity i want to say her name is purity i always call her hope that is not her name and now we have pestilence as as well and they finally formed the trinity they're finally all together here and about to wreak havoc on the world so we see that the human version of of pestilence isn't like the other so we've got rain who aka sam who is like really going through it right now so sam just realized that she is rain after all of lena's testing and showing her what's going down and she finally comes to terms with okay this is what's happening lena comes up with this electrocution therapy uh that she's got to do basically she's got a shock rain back into Sam's system so that rain is activated so she can study how to keep her turned off permanently is, is how they try to break it down. And in the process of that, Sam gets like a rant, she gets to go into like a random gray tunnel type of thing and talk with rain face to face. Like these dueling personalities are actually meeting. That can't be healthy, but you know, it turns out it's not. So at the, at the end of everything, Ring has a complete takeover. Like once Pestilence arrives, she immediately hooks up with Purity. Purity comes to grab her and save her. And then those two together go to get Sam, AKA Rain, and they get Rain from Lena. Bam, Trinity formed. Uh, Pestilence, like I said, the human version of her, she was a doctor, right? And they, they tried to give us a story of how through the trauma of her training and her, the trauma of her experience as a doctor, she gets to see uh, a the unfairness of a lot of her patients, like how they're they're dying from stuff that she feels like they haven't they don't deserve, or how like they had a random like little side view of how she felt about like health insurance and how like they don't do anything to help the everyday people. To which I was like, okay, like. Uh, 
Sure. Sure. It was, I, I got where they were trying to go with this. Like, you know, she's kind of scarred after, you know, seeing all these lives lost, but it felt kind of empty because A, we just met Pestilence. B, we weren't that invested in her human character. It wasn't like how we got with Purity, where they spent a large amount of time around Julia and her, like Sam, not really knowing what's going on and and how these powers are manifesting out of a place of trying to save someone. Her and Sam, both, that's kind of both how, how it started. Sam with her daughter, Julia with her best friend slash roommate. But with Pestilence, she's immediately evil. She's immediately just like, screw these people. And how we meet her is she takes down like this entire office, right? She takes down this whole office of people uh, and makes them sick. And then we get this side bit about the health insurance stuff and, and how she's jaded with trying to save people when, you know, she can only save but so much. It was it was a kind of awkward put together, but sure. Okay. So, so that uh, we also got Irma. Okay, Imra. I called her Irma before. It is not that. It is Imra. Imra, aka Saturn Girl versus Supergirl. It was just, uh, I don't, uh. okay, so I don't know if they were trying to also play on the fact that these are both people that are attached to Monel romantically. You know, Supergirl is the big love of his life. That's somebody Imra knows is a big love of his life. And maybe they were trying to play a little bit on that tension. Or if they were just like, we need a reason for Emra to stay here. Let's make up a story about her sister. So we know that the future that Emra, Brainy, and Monel are from as Legionnaires is a sucky one. It's like crazy post-apocalyptic. Something went down, and like they're they're just it's just the worst place ever. And for some, the story we got was that they came back here on purpose to stop something from happening in the future that they could you know, squash here in the present time for us, past for them. And then they decided to make that reveal, oh, pestilence. Pestilence morphs into another, you know, I don't even care. This other <laughs> this other being that just totally demolishes a bunch of stuff. And they had it where Imra's sister was one of the victims of this this new boss level up for pestilence. It was really random to me. And they just kind of like slapped it in there like, uh yeah, sure, this we'll do this. Absolutely. It, and it, what it resulted in was like Emra having this whole like we need to kill her story, which I feel we already got. Did we have this discussion? Oh no, that was on. See, it was on Flash because they just like to recycle these storylines. A whole like we can't kill because once we kill, we become the problem type of conversation. And again, just like with the Flash, I felt if they had. We won't have these other future problems. Like if they put, they had the chance to put Pestilence down and then, you know, they were all like, no, we can't be a villain. But if they did, Trinity wouldn't have harmed. Yes, they still would have had to deal with two world killers, but they would have had to deal with two world killers and not three. And definitely not one who messes up the future the way it, it's been explained to us through the Legionnaires. So again, I don't really see the issues we have at hand. Also, I'm not fully invested with the moralities of these side characters too. So there's that. But you know, they gotta keep up this heroes don't kill vibe, even though they totally do. Batman, Superman, list goes on. But anyway, so we're pretending that they don't. Um, yeah, 
the great thing that I got out of this Supergirl episode was that we got to see Brainy in his human disguise, aka we got to see the human actor who plays him sans the makeup. I had no idea it was Jesse Raff. So Jesse Raff, let me give you my brief rundown of my, my experience with Jesse Raff. I know him from a movie called Prom Wars. So I don't know if it was direct to DVD or not, but it's definitely a Canadian shot film. I caught it on cable one day and it was just this really funny, really smart movie about these, about these kids who are about to have their final prom. They're like in private schools and they're facing off with the rivals. And it, it was just a nice satire on like that genre of film entirely. It was super funny, super cute. And Jesse Rath was in it. He plays one of the main characters. And I was like, this is really smart. He was also in Being Human. He's Megan Rath's brother. And in the American version of Being Human, Megan Rath played uh, what? Sally, right? I think her name was Sally, the ghost. She played the ghost and uh, he played her brother in the show as well. They had a random storyline where they introduced the brother. He's kind of a recluse. I think there was a drug storyline or maybe they just made him like a bum. Like he was, he was very much like kind of scattered brain and not, not really doing a lot of things to get together. So, but he's always been like, he's, he's a, he's a cutie. He's a cutie patootie. And I've seen him in other stuff and I've always been a fan of his, his other work. So when they showed Brainy in his human disguise, I was like, oh, oh, oh yes. Plus, you know, a lot of people who read the comics, you know, online and everything are saying how Brainiac and Supergirl actually are a couple in the comics. And I was like, I am in. This has sealed it. Then I'm like, this is, who cares about Monel? Get the heck out of here. We need to figure out how to make this Brainy Supergirl thing a thing for the show. Let's go. So yeah, that was my biggest thing that Jesse Rath is actually Brainiac. And I did not recognize him with the makeup at all. So and plus Brainiac is just really funny. Brainy is so funny in this series. He's definitely some humor that's much needed in a lot of the, a lot of the angst and, and pseudo darkness that the show is trying to bring. I loved his back and forth with Wynn when Wynn was sick and he didn't catch any of the sarcasm that Wynn was throwing at him. The Freddy Krueger reference, it was, it was cute. I liked it. And the way he plays him, it's hysterical. So that, that's it. That was my biggest takeaways from Supergirl. And then running into Flash, also, d better episode. Definitely didn't feel like filler like the episode previously. Uh, I'm glad we got back to the Marley's thing. So, you know, there were, we got like random bits of like Marley's having doubts about still following DeVoe's plans. And that whole, we got that whole side story of uh, DeVoe basically manipulating her with his abilities to make sure she stayed next to him, like doping her with those tears and rearranging her memories and, and wiping them entirely so that she couldn't leave him. And in this particular episode, for whatever reason, DeVoe has no inclination that Marlise is getting fed up with what's going on and doesn't even attempt, well, kind of attempts, but doesn't even like clue in that she's about to roll, which I found interesting because he knew it all those other times. But anyway, we get a backstory between Marlies and Clifford DeVoe. So we get to see how they meet. We get to see how they actually got together. We see how they kind of complement each other more on Marlies than on Clifford. Clifford's very much a robot who's always been like, technology is the worst. I'm kind of for genocide. Like, like that's, that's been his thing this whole time. Even, even as a human, his whole goal was people are trying to do it. 
I don't want to say it's a noble goal, but it's again, it was like that loose logic where you're like, okay, so he feels people are too destructive and can't be trusted with technology. Uh, so we should wipe it out entirely. And then we find out Devo's ultimate plan, which is basically to lower human intelligence so that we're back to like, I want to say caveman-ish days where we're not concerned with all this tech at all. And we're just happy with like rocks and birds. So that's the, that we get that rolled out slowly but surely with this backstory. We also get to see why Marlies sided with him in the first place. Cause at first she's reacting like a normal human being, like you're crazy. Why the heck would we want to do something like that? And you see at some point, like they just couldn't get, she couldn't get past the fact that he still feels this way, like well into the relationship and the point to where they're moving in together. She takes a break from him. She ends up going overseas to help out with um, some cures medically for people that you know don't have any access to medicine, which puts her into the kind of war zones. And we get to a point where Clifford is like begging for her to come back. He really misses her. He really loves her. We get to see this human side of Clifford. And she's like, no, because you're on the verge of becoming a monster. I'm a, I'm a pass. And then she gets bombed and she sees firsthand the harsh reality of having weaponized tech against another human. And that's enough to flip her. And she's like, you're absolutely right, Clifford. We need to do something. And I like that we got that explanation. It took a while to get to that point of the explanation, but I like that we got it because now it makes a lot more sense as to why she'd be on board. Because the last couple of episodes have been her like, not so on board, kind of wondering why all the death is happening, which was weird because he murdered all of those other metas. I'm a sh and they were like 12 of them. It wasn't a small number. And she was like, that's fine. But now we're killing security guards. Like, so, so I like that we got a little more information as to why they went down. She went down that road with Clifford. Uh, I also liked the turnaround. So I liked that she was clever enough. Well, she she knew because he hurts her. He hurts her in the process of trying to fend off another idiotic berry attack. And her wrist gets... I don't know if it's fractured or just sprained. Something bad happens to it. So he puts her in the chair. In the chair, he puts a brace around it, and he tells her, "As long as she stays in this chair, she's going to heal pretty quickly, and then we can get back to what we're focused on, which is reversing intelligence." And that's when she gives her speech of just like, "No, I'm done. That's okay. You on your own." And he's like, "I'm not." He's like, "I'm not going to let you leave." And he tries to go after her, but apparently she's got shields up on this chair, and she's like, "Remember, you said." nothing can get through to this chair, I'm out. Like, like, that's pretty much it. And he's like, you can't just leave me, you know, blah, 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 blah. If you really think that you can escape me. And she's, she hits him back with this killer line of you are nothing without me and rolls out. That was a dope line. I like that. I really did. How effective is this line? It might not be that effective, but I like that she landed it and then left before he could give her any kind of recourse. That worked for me. I was like, okay. But now, of course, the question's up in the air. Is she going to go Team Flash and help them out? Is she going to become her own crazy supervillain? Is she going to go back to DeVoe? Is this going to be, it very much feels like a very like battered, abusive relationship. And unfortunately, in a lot of situations with those types of things, they'll take the space, they'll peace out, and they'll be like, no, nah, I'm not dealing with this. And then they're like, well, maybe they'll change. Or maybe I can reform them. Or maybe whatever. And they come back. So... I'm interested to see where they're actually going to do with all of that. Um, I also really liked the Cisco and Gypsy arc that we got. 
I'm not going to lie. I was mad confused with what we were going to do with this gypsy girlfriend because of the fact that A, they did not make her a series regular. So she wasn't staying on their earth. Uh, B, when we did get them together, it was usually to you know help go against the monster of the day or uh, introducing her father, which was wonderful. And we got those storylines, but then she would pace out. And then we got like a lot of them talking back and forth and doing those weird box things. And that was it. There was no no inclination at all, at least from my end, that Cisco was wasn't happy with how things are going. So they drop a lot on you. Like Cisco is really terrified of giving an answer about what to do now that um, Breacher is retired. He doesn't want to take on the breaching job. Um, but I guess it also kind of forced him and Gypsy to figure out what it is that they really wanted between each other. So I liked how it did the slow unfold. Like we've got Cisco's perspective and how he's kind of feeling kind of panicky and very hesitant about, you know, Gypsy coming through. And then we get Gypsy when she is there feeling like pissed off and pushed aside because she doesn't understand what the heck is Cisco's problem, but also how she's real hesitant to have him so close to her life. Like for right now, the way things are, they're totally working for her. That space, her flexibility of coming and going, she's happy with that. That's cool. And then we get an even further breakdown where we find out Cisco was not cool with that. He wants more. He does want to move on to like the even more intimate parts of the relationship, living together, seeing each other every day at the very least. And she is not comfortable with that at all. And it kind of boils down. Well, like we see it in their power. So they're supposed to team up and do like this double vibe thing so they can see what's going on with DeVoe. And it, it's kind of failing the first couple of times because their communication is not on par. And it works. I want. I guess it kind of works the, the, the last time they do it because they figure out where DeVoe's going to be. And that's when they do that failed attack on DeVoe, which again, I don't know why we needed that. Unless it was to set up Marlies getting hurt so she could leave. Otherwise, again, it was Team Flash being like, we're going to do it. And then like Napoleon being like, no, it's not going to it's not going to happen with Napoleon on, on Russia. Look it up. So, yeah. After another failed attempt, they're like, well, back to the drawing board. We're going to figure out something else. But after they do that, you know, we get the Cisco Gypsy come together where they're like, all right, we're finally going to hash it out. They find out what each other wants. It's not on the same page. They realize there's nothing to move forward with in this relationship. And I got to commend them on being real mature about what they got to do. I mean, tears were involved. I definitely shed a few tears with that ridiculous acting ability between Cisco and Gypsy. And just like you, you could sense how they both really wanted this thing to work. They both still really cared about each other. There just was no way it was going to functionally work with what they both wanted out of that. And so they make the adult decision to break up because there, there's there's literally nowhere to go from that and they have that hug goodbye and it oh it was it was it was depressing but sweet at the same time so this goes back to being single but i really appreciated that we got that and we got a little bit more closure on what was happening there because i was one of the people guessing that this was going to be cisco's moment to leave the show that he was gonna take that breacher job and, you know, cause it would leave it open for him to show up every now and again if he wanted to, but also totally peace out. So, so we'll see, we'll see how that goes. Uh, also, we got a little more information on Coffee Girl. So Coffee Girl's a speedster. At the very end, she shows the heck up at Barry's door and gives a, a gift to Cecile. 
and for her baby shower. And in, I, it was it was way random. I'm not really sure why she gave them this gift, but okay. Like usually, no, they haven't explained. No, I took that back. They haven't explained any of her occurrences with all these other people. Like she, she's met a lot of Team Flash with the exception of Iris. And they really haven't explained why she's meeting them or why she's choosing these moments to meet them. So there's that. We also got to see that she hid from Iris. So after she drops that off, she like immediately escapes. And we think she's gone, gone, but she's like hiding around the corner as Iris is like checking to see who it was that dropped off the gift. And we see the face that she makes when Iris is like checking. And it's it's a, it's hard, it's a hard read. It, it's definitely not a happy one. It's more, I'm not sure if it's a hurt one because this is somebody she looked up to that let her down, or if this is someone that she feels shouldn't be there in the first place or like it's definitely not a happy one so hopefully we get a backstory to what's going on and we find out she's a speedster because after she leaves that corner we see the familiar speedster trail that that electric kind of smoky thing which makes sense because my theory had been that she was the granddaughter of barry and iris she might be the daughter of Barry and Iris. So there's been little hints here and there. She's got kind of, in, when she came in as the waitress, she had red hair. It's like, that's interesting. She's clearly mixed. She's she's clearly an African mix. So I was like, okay, this is Iris, Barry. This could be, this could be the mix. So we'll see. Still no answers, but we still have a couple more episodes, at least with Flash. See where everything goes. They left everything pretty much how this whole season has been with DeVoe still winning and still way ahead and Team Flash still trying to figure out a way to catch up. We did get Cecile and Harrison bonding time. Harrison is slowly losing his intelligence. They figure out the more he tries to use his brain, the faster it's going away. Cecile's mind reading ability right now is coming in handy because she's able to use what little bit of functionality he's getting to kind of piece together what DeVoe is doing. But again, that ended up being fruitless because they couldn't do anything. So whatever. But yeah, so that's how Flash ended. And that's pretty much it for DC TV because I don't watch Arrow and everything else is done for the season. So right after this, we are going to be jumping into, I want to say The Expanse. Yep, that's it. To The Expanse right after this. All right, so The Expanse had another great episode. I'm enjoying all of the episodes of The Expanse. I know some people felt like last week's Expanse wasn't the greatest, but you know what? It's fine for me. It's where it's working. I'm happy. Although my only complaint with The Expanse is that they do such a good job of using every minute of their show that I'm like, why can't I binge watch this show? Why do I have to wait week after week? So that being said, let's jump on in. Um, I'm going to break it down into what's happening on the former Ross and Nade because I'm never going to remember what its new name is, uh, what's going on in proto-molecule land, and also what's happening with Earnwright versus everybody. So Rasenade crew is always having a lit time over there. So they are scavenging for ammunition because, you know, they used a lot of it to save Bobby and Officer Rolla, and they need, you know, more more bullets, basically, more weapons, because a war is happening right now. There's a full war going on right now. So they need to make sure that they're protected. They kind of come across this Martian vessel that looks dead. There's that doesn't look like anything's happening on it. And they decide to scavenge it for what they need. And they hit the jackpot. This is like oh they this is like almost like a full well, I guess equipped 
with ammunition type of vessel. So they're like, all right, we got what we need. As they're starting to get their get the ammunition out of this ship, Holden hears something and he realizes they're using, Mor- using Morris code to signal SOS. He can hear the, the taps. So they go to investigate and they see a lot of this Martian crew dead, but there's some survivors. There's like three whole survivors left on that ship. And it's holding in crew. So they're gonna they're gonna do their best to save what they can. So they pause on the ammunition gathering, save the surviving Martians, and bring them back to their ship. Sounds great. Of course, it's gonna turn around and bite them in the butt. So these this Martian crew slowly but surely pieces together that they are not on a Martian ship. Like it looks like it's one, but people are acting weird and the uniforms are strange and they're just like, wait a second. And then they finally piece it together. Like, oh wait, no, this is the the crew that that stole a Martian ship. And they're just kind of roaming around and like doing whatever the hell they want. So they decide, these surviving members of this Martian crew decide that they need to stay the cause and decide to take over the ship. Mind you, they are three strong, but I guess they feel like they're Martians, so they have to try something versus the rest of this crew of the Rasanati. In my opinion, they lucked out because Amos and Prax were not there. We know Amos doesn't play, and he would have shut it down really fast, <laughs> super fast. Prax, maybe. But he, him and Prax went back to the Martian vessel to get the rest of that ammunition because they still need it. They still need it. So they went to do that. Um, what actually happens is that we see a very great exchange with Alex, Robbie, and Holden against this this crew, these crew, this new Martian crew trying to take over the ship. Alex, for whatever reason, and I like that they play on this a lot. They play on this insecurity he's got about not being a real Martian soldier. So uh, as we learned before in the first season, he tried to be a pilot and apparently failed the testing for that. But he's been the Ross and I pilot for some time and he's a great pilot. So I it felt like this was his chance to like really let other Martians know, yo, I'm great at what I'm doing. Yeah, it's illegal, but I'm great at what I'm doing. So he decides to take it upon himself to be like the the guy that's going to reach out to these guys and and not not necessarily be the cool guy, but be the one that's like, I understand. I too am a Martian and I too understand the need to focus on the cause. Of course, it doesn't work out that way. They immediately are like, you're a weak link. We can totally take you over and try to get this ship. And they do. They beat the ish out of Alex and then take him as a hostage before they try to go and take over the ship. Um, They use him to get to the next deck where Naomi is trying to figure out the best way to get these. I want to say figure out a a way to, to drop off the their their new savior people or people they saved and rescuees. I think that might be the word. And we see, oh, just kidding. They're trying to take over the ship. So Naomi, to her credit, is trying her very best to show them that she's a person. She's over here like, okay, like trying to calm them down because, you know, of course they're they're all freaking out. But she's like, all right, I'm, a, I'm going to do exactly what you say, whatever you say but I do need to take care of these other people simultaneously trying to buy time and reassure them. I'm also a person. There's no reason for people to lose their lives today. So she's trying her best to kind of juggle that. Uh, Holden accidentally walks in on the third survivor who they just finished treating, by the way, 
trying to gain ammunition, going into their armory and trying to get weapons. Thankfully, they're out of ammunition. So, <laughs> so when he tries to shoot them, so when this uh, Martian survivor tries to get Holden, there's nothing in the gun and Holden's able to take him over. Not without a bloody nose, but he manages to get it done. And he makes his way up to the deck. And Robbie, or not Robbie, ugh, Bobby. Bobby also walks on deck just as all of the action is going down. And I got mad excited because this is Bobby and she don't play. And if she wanted to take down all of them, she completely could have without the suit. So she also is like, you guys need to chill the F out. Let's all figure out what's happening. We can work on this together. And between... Ni uh, well, not even Naomi. Well, Naomi's calmness, I'll say, and the fact that Alex is, you know, in and out of consciousness. Aside from them, I liked the Bobby Holden. We we could figure this out and get it get to a peaceful resolution by the end of this. That and he, I don't know if he was appointed the leader of these Martian survivors or not, but the kid who basically was the first one to speak out and be like, let's stop. There's no reason we need to die on this ship. I like that he had a clear enough head to be like, yeah, we're not going to be able to take over the ship like we had intended. Let's let's take our wins as we got them right now because it's not going to get better than right now. So I like that. I like how they came together, especially with Bobby's attitude uh, with everybody on the ship. She's kind of for the most part, she's been looking down on them. She's just like, uh, okay, whatever. You guys are like scavengers slash, you know, just, what is the word? Not reapers, but you know, they're, they're illegal. They're doing criminal activity. She doesn't see them as like on level or on par with her, even though technically they kind of are. But this was like the point where she starts to see them as, okay, on level, as on the same level. That, and we got a nice moment between her and Alex and like, working out together. That was really cute. And my hope for them continues. I don't know why I need them to be paired off, but I do. I just need, I just need them together. So that fan shipping aside, we also got to see Avasarala in peak Avasarala form. She's been viewing the video of the speech that went down, which I will get into. So the Secretary General, whose name is Esteban, I don't know why I didn't pick this up earlier, but so he gave this speech and we find out that this speech that I'll get into later is pretty pivotal in this current movement of the war. So the speech he gives very much is like a justification of why Earth needs to go against Mars and everybody's like hurrahing except for Reverend Ava. She's kind of staring horrified at what's happening right now. And Officer Rolla catches that while she's watching the video feed of it and she's like quickly putting this plan together so we see her figure out a i've got an in to get this information to the right people to the right offices in order to take down earn right and b i now have a way to do this so they strike a deal with the martian survivors they're going to um help them get to a martian ship a real one but what they've got to do in exchange is hand off this message that officer has got and make sure it gets to our favorite admiral, so so Sother, 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 yes, one of those, which is the guy we met in the previous episode, who's like something weird is happening right now, and I don't know what's going on. And uh, that other admiral, Nguyen, was trying to like force him into doing whatever he said. So his name came up again. She's like, I need you to get this message to him. You get this message to him, then he can get it to who I need it to get to, and 
more than likely that's going to be Reverend Ava so that she can get it to Esteban. I can't believe his name is Esteban. So yeah, that. That is all happening. So we see that all kind of come together for the people on the Rasenade. The other standout point I got from that was Prax. So up until now, Amos and Prax, their pairing has been really cute. And Prax, for the most part, has been the innocence in a lot of their pair-ups with Amos telling him like these like harsh realities that he's had to face and how it's just normal for him now. And Prax like really coming into these situations with like just like brand new, almost dear eyes. Doe eyes, doe eyes. That's it. There we go. And now, and then we see them on the ship, like after everything had gone down and they're trying to get this ammunition, there's a body propped up against the ammunition door. And normally that's something Prax would be real skittish about. I'm just like, oh my gosh, this poor man. And like going into like a thousand reasons as to why they need to like really be careful and really respect this person. And instead he just kind of pushes him off like it's a branch on a car and gets right into the ammunition. And we see the look on Amos's face as he's like, he's really shocked by what's going down. It's just like, what the heck? This this guy is supposed to be his new Jiminy Cricket. This guy's supposed to be like this conscience that he doesn't have on his own. And this conscience is becoming real jaded real quick. So I like that little standout moment we got as well. And and some of the stuff he said about, about May and how, you know, even though he is trying to save his daughter and he's really hoping he finds her, he's also realizing that if he does find her and she is that proto-molecule proto monster, he's going to put her down. And I was just like, whoa, this is a lot. So, but I like that. I like that we got all of that happening on the former Rasenade. I am never going to remember the new name of that ship. We also got over on the proto-molecule side, we got a proto-molecule Katoa. Katoa, as, of, as we had been seeing progressively, has become entwined with the proto-molecule. Like he's been having glowy arms and, and doing ridiculous acrobatics and just like parkour everywhere. And of course, when Mao decides that this experimentation on the kids has to stop as of last episode, of course it wasn't going to stop. My, my, theory, my theory and guess was that this, the mad scientist dude wasn't going to stop it. I thought he was gonna take all of the kids and just rush order it. Like, all right, everybody's getting protomolecule today. Like we're gonna just start pushing it. But instead what he did was take care of what, basically of what he's got and Katoa currently has the protomolecule and is the most advanced in his experimentation, experimentation stage. So he was just like, so Mal's like, you know, get these kids together, we're getting everybody off ship. And the mad scientist is trying to set it up like, oh, not everybody has survived. Who exactly do you want? And you know, which results in Mal being like, "Are you dumb? I want everybody that's living." <laughs> so it was it was a nice way for him to like kind of cover the fact that he's still working on Katoa. And then we find out like Katoa's becoming more and more proto proto molecule ish. Up until now, we've only seen the proto molecule interact with a speaking human with Julie. So Julie Mal, she had her situation with the protomolecule. And by the time we saw what actually went down with Julie, she had gone full protomolecule. Like she had shed her skin and had become a full glowing blue light at that point. And Katoa's, he's getting closer to that. His eyes have changed. It's very, it's far more evident through his skin that his skin is becoming thinner because you can see the lights a lot more, not just in his arm now, but almost his whole body. And he's talking weird. He's talking like our robot right now. I guess he's trying to talk like an intelligent, you know, life form which is what the proto molecule actually is and 
It's creeping everybody out. So uh, the only reason we get even more information on that is because May is not going to let it slide that she can't see her friend. Her and Katoa got real close. And now that she knows that they're about to leave again, she's like, yo, where's my friend? Why can't I talk to him? And she takes it upon herself to be like, screw all this. I'm going to go find Katoa. Mind you, she is young. I want to say she's like 10, 11 maybe. And she quickly realizes she's in over her head. The area starts getting real scary. Corridor gets dark. And Mal finds her like huddled against the wall right outside the door leading to Katoa's like testing chambers. And so he's like, he finds her and he's like trying to talk her down. And we get to see this human side of Mal. And he reaches out to May and, and he's like, okay, we're going to go see Katoa together. Come on. He realizes mad scientist dude is still testing. So he busts in there with May and they see Katoa and May's like, what the hell is happening? And Mal also sees Katoa and he's like, get May out of here. So they scoot May out. He sees what Katoa is and sees what he's doing and demands an explanation from scientist dude. Mad scientist is like, listen, I know you wanted us to stop, but I told you straight up that we have this responsibility and we're so close. And Mal's like, shut up, what's happening? And we see that Katoa has dismantled something and he explains that he's trying to put it together in order to understand what, how it exactly works. The thing he's taking apart is his nurse. So it's a person. And he has neatly like taken the skin off this body, neatly sorted the insides, the entrails, gallbladders, intestines, what have you, you know, and pushed the bones to the side. Real creepy murdery. And Mal's like, I'm back in. We're going to continue the testing. Forget all that noise I said about stopping it. Full 100%. So Mal was back to the evil side. We just got a brief glimpse of his human humanness. And it's gone. It's gone again. Also, on the Earnwright versus Reverend Anna side, like I said, last episode, Earnwright is doing a great job at being an asshole. He's so good at it. And it is no exception for this episode as well. The speech goes down and we see from Anna that this, or not Anna, Ava. No, Anna. I don't remember now. What is her name? I want to say it's Anna. But we see from the speech that... The speech that she wrote that Esteban was supposed to have done was it was supposed to be an apology. It was supposed to be like a humbling of exactly what went down with uh, Amazonia. Amazonia has totally been nuked after their botched attempt to take down these Martian warships. I, I still don't know exactly what they were. And I'm too lazy to rewatch the episode. So, but they took, they put their attack on Mars because Mars had been stationed to like attack Earth directly. They took out all of those warships, but not before one of the warships was able to get a shot off. And when they did, it killed like 2 billion people, you know, on Earth. And so the speech he was supposed to be giving was about how A, he fucked up royally and he's apologizing. And B, that... I'm still trying to read this. And B, you know, that he's 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 really looking at ways to not let that happen again because it's unacceptable. Any loss of life is unacceptable, according to both of them. Um, unfortunately, that's not what Earnwright wants him to say. He uses this moment to propel his own propaganda against the fact that they need to take down Mars. He is hell bent on totally dominating Mars. So he uses, he changes some words up and it quickly goes from being a humble apology to being like, and this is why we need to kill Mars. And everybody's on board. Everybody's like, you know what? You're right, we should kill Mars. So 
the poor reverend is just staring there, sitting there listening to all of this and is horrified. Like you see it on her face as she's, as everything is slowly unloading. It is Anna, I figured it out. Just like, what the fuck? Like just like that, that is just her whole face. And Ernwright is sitting right next to her looking smug as fuck. And just is like, uh-huh, yup. Plan going forward exactly as I wanted to. And he's, he's like, we couldn't have done it without you. And he's standing up and applauding. And she's still sitting there just like, what the fuck? What is happening? And that quickly, I loved that she also got a chance to take him down a little bit. So after everything unfolds and that speech is done and she's back in the quarters with Esteban and stupid Earnwright, she lets Earnwright have it. Like, the, the, how dare you? How dare you use my words the way that you did? Get the fuck out of here. This is the last time you're talking to me like this. And then she goes in on Esteban. It's like, this is the reason why I wasn't trying to be with you in the first place. Like, you know, we get a little bit more of what happened the first go around she had with Esteban because she used to be his writer before. And she left because she said they had like, they just didn't meet up. They didn't agree on a lot of things. And we find out he was doing dirty-ish then too. And she was tired of it. She doesn't want to be the one who's helping to mop up all the blood that he's leaving behind in his legacy. So she completely lets him have it. And she goes back to her quarters and she's fully intent on packing it up and leaving, going back home to be with her wife and child and just be away from everything that's going on. I liked the talk that she had back and forth with her wife, with her wife being like, uh, I absolutely want you to come home. Like, <laughs> that would be great. We're at war. I'm scared as fuck but are you supposed to be coming home? Like really like really trying to help her wife think it out. Like, is this really your place? Is this really the time and the place for you to leave? Or are you needed there even more now because of everything that's going down? And so you, you know, we're kind of left with Anna with a heavy decision on her to figure out whether or not she's going to be staying or if she's gonna pack it up and leave because Whoo, shit is hitting the fan. It is going crazy up there. And we figure out why Anna is there, or at least I do. I figure out why Anna is part of the storyline all of a sudden. She's the end of Sorala needs, like we said before. So after that whole speech, Avasarala sees that that point of her. And if she stays, that will make it that much more great when Earnwright is finally taken down. Cause it's coming. It's coming. There's too many loose ends on this dude right now that are just out in the world. Mao's still alive. Avasarala's still alive. The stuff that's happening on that other ship that Nguyen is trying to take over. What the Agatha. We have too many witnesses right now with <laughs> what's happening. So It'll be that much more delicious when they finally take him down. So here's hoping that everything slowly heads in that direction. And that's kind of how we're left with things. Avicerala's got her plan that she's putting into motion. And war, the war is still going on. The war rages on, per always. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this next episode. I'm excited. Hopefully we get more information about the proto-molecule, especially with poor Katoa now going full through it. Is it bad that I'm kind of hoping that Katoa just murders the mad scientist at some point? That's probably a bad thought, but I'm going to put it out there. So, yeah, that's it. So right after this, we're going to jump real quick into the Badlands, the AMC show Into the Badlands. Uh, it's only two episodes in, and I've just got a few thoughts on what's going on there. I will have a lot more once Louis Tan arrives. So we'll be talking about that right after this.
All right, so real quickly, AMC has brought Into the Badlands back, and now we're two episodes in. So this show, I fell in love with the concept of this show before the first season when they made the announcement that they were going to try to go in that direction. I love martial art films. I love them. They're great. So when they said they were going to rope in almost like a steampunk narrative tied in with martial arts, and they were dropping some big names who have been in that type of film industry for ages, for ages. I was like, I'm in, I'm in. What, what are we going to watch? That and, of course, all of the diversity that's on screen right there. It's amazing. Like, we have a, a lead Asian-American actor, Daniel Wu, who's huge in China, comes from, is he from Canada? I, I want to say he comes from the States. We'll find out. But yeah, so we see him. Hong Kong, an American actor. Yeah, American, not Canadian. Ha! So we have Daniel Wu, <laughs> who's a great martial artist. We get to see him fight. Uh, but we had also had a Persian lead, Aramis Knight, who's also up in here doing his thing, kicking it, killing it with martial arts here. And then we also got there's so many others. We have females kicking butt. And it's just, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to see all of these cultures, all of these different ethnicities on the screen doing amazing things and just being great and being crazy. Nick Frost is in it, okay? Okay, Nick Frost is in it. And he's doing a fantastic job. So all of this, all of this is happening. Um, And yeah, so the first two seasons uh, were really good at laying the foundations of this world. The first season was kind of slow. So I can understand how some people were like, what is happening like they set it up as like a post-apocalyptic world but for whatever reason it was also very steampunky and that it felt like we were watching an 1800s film they were mixing a lot of genres together and we found out there's regents and there's these uh bosses oh what are they called barons there's these barons and they all have like different sections of land of what's been surviving after whatever went down to like create this new post-apocalyptic landscape. Uh, Barons are inherently evil, that's what we're finding out. And in the first season, it was all about taking down the existing Barons in order to create a freer space. Um, our, and that kind of led itself into the second season. First season was more about Sunny. So we've got, we learned more about our leads. We just established who the leads are, who the big bad is, and what's gonna go down. And then uh, all these secrets kind of fell out the woodwork. Uh, we've got, kids and and some grown adults who get like these superhuman abilities their eyes turn totally black and they become ridiculously effective assassins like they they, do, they can take a punch and keep it moving they punch at with like the strength of like a gazillion men and we find out that mk the uh, aramis nice character is one of them and he's like this little kid and he's doing all this so we see that Second season dives into that a little bit more. We find out um, that a lot of people, there's a lot of kids that have this ability and uh, there's some people out there that are utilizing this and weaponizing it as one would uh, under the guise of doing it for something better. And you know, MK kind of gets teamed up with that and we learn more about his ability and his background because he's, he's, he's this kid that's kind of came out of nowhere and has constantly been on the run and he doesn't have a whole lot of memory of his time before just running all the time. So, but he's also been a kid that's kind of been wanted. There's like been people out there looking for him. So more questions. Uh, and we kind of get some answers with the second season. We find out that, you know, he was, 
he was with his mother before she was brutally murdered. And in the second season, it seems he was the one that did that. Like he, when he went total black eyes and just started demolishing things, she was part of that, apparently. And that's the other thing that they've shown. Like if you don't have full control of your ability, if you get cut, that's what triggers it. Being cut enough to draw blood triggers this thing and it takes over and you almost have no consciousness of what's going on. In the second season, uh, supposedly MK was learning how to keep his consciousness while that was going on. So, you know, he wasn't a complete annihilation monster. It doesn't work out well. It doesn't end well with that. And by the end of second season, he's lost that ability. By the end of the second season, also, most of the barons are dead. So uh, there's another lady whose insignia is this butterfly in the Baroness. She's also, AKA the widow. So her whole story is that she's killed her Baron. She married somebody who was terrible and she killed him and took over and has been trying to take over ever since. And she kind of plays this role of like this misguided noble mission of hers of, of freeing people and making sure nobody's a slave because she too was once a slave of somebody's. But we also find out there's far more nefarious reason that she's after this. She's trying to get complete control of everything and feels like she's the best person for the job because somebody's going to be taking it over anyway uh, for everybody to have like an equal stance in this new world that she's trying to build. Completely flawed. But that's how the second season ends. It's like she's like at the precipice of making this happen. And some people fall out with that. She has a daughter, Tilda, that she had kind of been looking to as her number two. And Tilda realizes, oh, you're also a monster. I'm out. And she rolls, she rolls out. And that leads us into season three. So season three is all about Sunny uh, trying to figure out what he's supposed to do now. So Sunny is the main character. That's Daniel Wu's character. In his little arc of story, he was like the prime regent for his Baron at the time. He was the best one. He had so many kills, which they tattoo into themselves. And he had a secret love affair with this like town doctor, little daughter of the doctor which uh, was Vale. Vale was this adorable, this adorable black lady. And the, uh, granted, the romance they were trying to push between them was mad force. Like, didn't really see a lot of the chemistry between these two. But we just went with it because <laughs> why not in this story? So they carried this love affair for two seasons. And then uh, Vale was pregnant with Sunny's child. Like, that was the bomb drop in the first season. Second season was Vale dealing with her pregnancy. Uh and having Henry, which is the child she names after her father, but she's also in the clutches of this crazy baron who we thought was dead, but was actually alive. And this crazy baron has decided, oh, you know what I need to do? I need to marry Vale. Then like, okay, sure. All right, whatever, whatever. So that whole second season is about her crazy life and how she's trying to deal and escape and get back with Sunny. End of that season is Vale sacrificing herself in order to save Henry and Sunny. Because why not? So they kill off the only black female we had in the show and uh, with a sacrifice. And now Sonny is on his own. He's got this son, Henry. He's got a fresh baby. You don't know what to do with this baby, but he's now on the run because he's still kind of wanted. He's still a danger to this new world that the Baroness, the widow is making. So he's on the run right now. And uh, trying try to think, figure things out. Henry gets sick. That's how we kick it off with season three. So he's got Henry still on the run. Henry gets sick. He takes it to takes Henry to a healer. We find out Henry's part of the Black Eyes kids. He's for whatever reason, as an infant, Henry has this ability to also go full Black Eyes. Mind you, he's a baby, so it's not like he can fight 
anything, but this is also wrecking havoc with his system. He's running a crazy fever and it, it's like his body is fighting what's happening to it at the same time. And Henry, or not Henry, Sonny needs, needs help. He needs help and he needs some answers. So he goes into town, he follows Baji and he goes into, uh, did he go into town? No, I think he was already in the same area as, uh, as that lady. So the veteran had a wife who he tried to kill, Miss Lydia, the evil bear that used to run, that used to own Sonny. She's completely turned her page. And now, now she's like this, this conscious, uh, I don't want to say healer, but she's trying to be like this this person who's neutral, which is what her dad used to be. He was like this neutral area for people who weren't trying to be part of the barons and who weren't trying to be uh, other criminal activity. They were just trying to like be hippie and be and keep a peace. So she's trying to create like a neutral area with that. So he finds himself there. And I'm not sure how or why, but Lydia's like, well, we could probably figure out how to cure him here for whatever reason. So he's like, okay, but uh, other things are happening. So meanwhile, the widow has secured another regent who is a person. I oh, you know what, there's a lot of names. I don't remember everybody's name, but um, yeah. So she has secured this other regent, this regent that uh, has already gone up against Sonny. What is his name? Is that Pilgrim? It's something. Anyway, so this guy lost his arm to Sonny in like the second season. He's another regent who left the Baron. Left was it the same Baron or a Baron? Maybe it was the same Baron. And they face off against Sonny. And at the time, this dude had a death wish. He was like just trying to die. Like he had this whole family and everything, very very mirrorish to Sonny at the time. And ultimately, that family passed. And now he was just kind of wandering without anything really to ground him in this world. And so he was hoping to die. Sonny's whole point for him was that he was going to be the person that took him down. He was like, cool, whatever. I'm going to go at you 100%. I need you to kill me. Sonny was like, I'm not doing that. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to murder you. That's not going to happen. So they have this face off and they fight. And at the end of it, Sonny just takes his hand and is like, I'm out, peace. Like, I'm not, I'm not murdering you. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Of course, this pisses this guy off because that was his whole point. Uh, so, and now the widow has found him. She like faced him off in a duel one and now he's her regent. And he's just like, I guess trying to, hey, trying to find Sonny again so that he could try to murder him. But also he's really enjoying kicking people around so he can create this new world with the widow. <laughs> he faces off against MK. MK, mind you, is going through it because he doesn't have his abilities anymore. And he's been using opium to kind of subset the angsty feelings he's got about not having these abilities anymore. He's trying to figure out a way to unlock it. Uh, it hasn't been working. So he gets really pissed off. Uh, apparently his opium got taken away. He was mad and they face off against this new regent. And he kind of holds his own. Hi, MK, or maybe going through withdrawals, MK. Almost, almost does some damage, almost, not quite, but almost, almost does some damage. And it was interesting to watch. I'm still confused as to why he's still chilling with the widow. I know at the end of season two, the widow was like, I can help you. Cause we find out the widow was also one of, once one of the black eyes kids. But uh, I'm not sure why he believed that she could help him because she hasn't gained that ability back. I have a thousand questions. So 
But whatever reason, he's still chilling there. And he figures after he takes the beating from her new regent, he goes and finds the opium and is like, I'm getting high and goes full high to the point of like nearly ODing. He passes out. And then we have this whole subconscious story arc in the last episode where he meets up with his black eye itself. Like he's done before. So like in season two, he kind of had to face his black eyed self. The black eyed self of him is like the harsh reality of him. Like get it together, MK. (laughs) You're freaking losing it. I need you to get it together so we can get on and get out of here. And uh, him and MK, I I guess it was a way for him to find the root of why he was even triggered in the first place. So uh, he's like, nah, I'm glad you're gone. We're the reason my mother's dead. And his black eyed self is like, no, we're not. I need you to remember. And then he has this memory. So we see him, well, through him, as he's kind of like walking through this memory, whatever little area he was in is being attacked. It's being attacked by, I don't even remember what they're called. Regent, they're not all called regents. That's just the head version of them. But the Baron's assassins, they're being attacked by Baron assassins. These assassins look mad familiar. It's getting suspicious. I'm getting scared. And then I realize that it's that crazy Baron, the one that Sonny worked for. And I'm like, please don't be Sonny. So we see his mom get murdered and we see the murderer pull their sword away. And of course it's Sonny. So I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, so, so we get that answer. MK comes to, he had like passed out on the floor from all of the opium he had been taken. And now it's kind of up in the air of, A, is he going to be able to tap back into his black-eyed self now that he's got this truth and now that he kind of faced himself? And B, where is this going to leave his relationship with Sonny? Because up until this point, even though he's been getting crazy high this entire time, Sonny has still been on a pedestal for him. He's the regent that took him in. He's the regent that saved him. And he's the regent that taught him everything he knows. So what is he supposed to do? So we get we get that we get that story. We also get more of the pilgrim. That was some of the grossest stuff I had ever seen. So there's a new character called the pilgrim, and he's also looking for this magical land that everybody is trying to get answers to. Azareth, Nazareth, it's a place. So this guy, who I'm not sure is he also a black eyed kid? I don't. He's got two of them. He's got two kids with him who also go black eyes. One of them is starting to short like. Some moments he's fully in control and other times he's fading out of it and going back to regular person. And I don't know if that's because he's becoming disenfranchised with what's going on or if he's literally dying. There's, there's a lot of things going around these kids with the black eyes. And this, uh, the lady that's with the pilgrim makes it known that like these kids don't live that long. Either that's because they get killed because we're constantly using them as assassins or they just don't have long lifespans because of what their bodies go through when they change. Either way. We see him trying to find answers. Apparently they found something. I don't know if it was Azeroth or just like another kingdom of Azeroth or something, but they get into this place that very much looks like a museum. And apparently they need to tap into this lady's seer abilities to find out what their next move should be, which is mad gross. This is like blood magic-ish. It's real creepy. They do this like weird ceremony. And then this lady takes uh, part of her her top down like around her back so that he can shove a sword right under her shoulder blades deep enough to put hooks into so that they can suspend her 
in the middle of the air so that she can get whatever these answers are supposed to be. Mad creepy, but clearly this guy is going to be the next big bad, big bad that they've got to face, Sonny and crew. I just don't know how bad this guy actually is supposed to be. He seems to have a, spe a specific purpose, a specific focus, and he's trying to find this, this magical place that people have watches of and compasses of. But clearly it's gonna come at odds with someone, the widow, Sonny, MK, somebody. Somebody's gonna have a problem with what's going on. So it'll be interesting, as I always say in all these episodes. Mind you, this is the this is only two episodes. We're only two episodes into this season. So yeah. So I feel like it's really gonna take off with this third episode. Third episode's gonna kick in. The only reason I'm mad excited about Into the Badlands, in addition to already watching the first two seasons, is that Louis Tan is going to have a story arc in it. He's going to be in, in the Badlands at some point. Louis Tan, in case you don't know who that is, uh, came onto my radar with the Iron Fist stuff that went down. I have said it before, uh, with Iron Fist, I definitely was on board with the Asian American Iron Fist. I was really hoping Marvel was going to tell that story through that particular lens and they didn't. And Iron Fist came out and it was terrible, terrible. Ugh, ugh, still terrible. Even when they like just showed him in like Defenders, it was still bad. Anyway, so uh, Louis Tan uh, was one of the actors on that show and he had been interviewed about everything that had gone down and he let it drop that he actually auditioned for the role of Danny Rand. And instead he ended up getting a different ro role. I wanna say, Chow? No, yes, no, Chang, there we go, Zhao Chang. Z Zhao Chang. He played Zhao Chang. He played the charming British dude who did the drunken master type of style fighting. I want to say it was episode 10. He was the only episode I watched because everybody was like, who was this guy? Like, what? And then I'm like, wait a second. Here's like, like this charismatic, actually can fight dude. And then he started making all, all my podcast rounds. He started hitting all these geek podcasts and explaining like, you know, what he did and, and how he's entered the scene and how he's looking forward for more opportunity. And opportunity just kind of started coming his way. He's going to be in Into the Badlands. He's going to have a, little, a, a nice little arc in the show at some point for this season. He's also going to be in Deadpool. So, yay. Also, he's fine as hell. Oh, my God. So, can't wait. Can't wait to see Louis Tan in action. I am so excited to see what else is going to happen. He puts a bunch of stuff on his Instagrams and his socials because I stalk him and I look at those. And you see a lot of his training. He does a lot of training, you know, too to keep in peak physical readiness because that's been his life. His dad was a uh, fight choreographer forever, forever. So this has been his life. He's been studying this stuff since he was a kid. It's no joke. He knows what he's doing. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. So I'm going to be checking about, I'm, well, I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye out for Louis Tan at some point to get this storyline going. Uh, and yeah. I'll be including Into the Badlands into the show because we're about to hit summer. It's going to slow down-ish with a lot of the geek shows. So we'll see. And this was supposed to be like a quick recap, but it has become very long. But yeah. So yeah. So Into the Badlands, that's kind of where we're living things right now. At some point, Louis Tan is coming in. <laughs> and we got this pilgrim who is doing weird things to get information. We got the Black, Black Widow. Yes. The Widow with her current 
role of trying to run the world. Uh, Sonny in trouble with Henry, trying to figure out what to do. And MK finding out the truth of what went down or as he remembers it. And uh, we'll see the fallout of how that goes down. So I'm going to be moving on though into My Hero Academia right after this. All right, so My Hero Academia, this will be short because not a lot happened with My Hero Academia. It's a quick 30-minute episode that we got over the weekend. Uh, Basically, it just picked up where they left off. So at the end of the last episode, you know, Deku, 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 had his face off with the with his boss that he had to fight, uh, which was a guy who had similar ability to him and had who killed who had killed Kato's parents, little kid's parents, back in the day. We got a lot of reveals happening, and uh, out of the depths of his pain, Deku managed to find more strength to beat this guy, and he does. He puts him down, and then we get to see him have this whole conversation with Koda about how. Uh, what what being a hero really means, basically. Like like how all of these presumptions that Coda has made, granted fair ones because of everything that had gone down with his parents, might have been a little misguided in everything that had gone down. So he picks up Coda with his one good arm because mind you, he's broken and carries Coda to safety. He tries to get him back, uh, back, back to the teachers. So we also find out that the teachers, uh, especially for the remedial kids, they just got all the kids back into the classrooms before all the ish has gone down. So now the teachers are aware that they're under attack. One one of the, the cats, kitties, cats, that team, um, the one with the psychic ability, she has announced that, yeah, uh, we are under attack. If you are not in the forest, please make your way to a classroom. And so <laughs> raise her head and the other teacher are like, oh, fuck. So, so Eraserhead tells the other teacher to like, stay with the kids. He's gonna go check out what's happening outside real quick. He makes his way outside, you know, see if he can get other kids out of the forest. And immediately he meets up with one of the villains. So him and the villain kind of go at it. And at first it looks like the villain's gonna have the upper hand, but it's Eraserhead. He knows what he's doing and he evades him easily. And he manages to get one up on this villain. And he's trying to get information out this villain. The villain tries to play coy and not give too much information away, but he gives enough away that Eraserhead's able to put together that, A, these villains are out here to round up somebody. They're trying to go after one of the kids. And B, uh, the quirk that he's facing off against, against this uh, particular person, is not the quirk he thought it was. It wasn't the explosion he saw. So, and then the person fades to like ash and goes away. And so, Ursus had like, no crap. And we find out that, uh, you know what? I still don't really know what that villain's power is. I'm, I know I read it in the in the manga, but but he actually does kind of escapes me. So this villain is actually, it was actually a double. He, there's another uh, person on this league who can make duplicates. And that's what he had been doing. So there's that. We get to meet two other villains. Uh, And then we get to see where like the kids are. So we get uh, the kids from 1B. They get a chance to shine a little bit. Tetsu Tetsu is a kid who can also harden. He turns to steel. And Kendu is the girl who can make her hands like super, super big. She can do the big fist. So they have masks on. And uh, because um, one of the kids from class 1A, the girl who can make things, 
she's been making gas masks for everybody because she's brilliant. So she, they've got some gas masks. They uh, are running to figure out where, how to help basically. Because Tessie Tessie was like, I'm fighting. <laughs> like the class 1A kids, this is what sets them apart from us. They go out there and they, they try to do the hero thing. We're heroes this is why we're training. I'm going. Kendu follows him. And it's not so much that she completely agrees with him as much as it is, as it is that she knows he's not going to catch everything. She's very good at analyzing what's happening and, and strategizing. She's super good at it. So she goes off with him and she manages to stop him because they're in an area where the smoke is getting a lot thicker. And she's like, there's something weird going on. And so she's pointing out like all these inconsistencies. Like if this was actual smog, it wouldn't be as structured as it is right now. Like it's, it's very contained. It's supposed to be going everywhere. And we're in a thicker part. It wasn't as thick as, it, as this when we were in a different part of the forest. And she's piecing together that this is like swirling around one source. So they need to get even into the even thicker smog, you know, fog of this to figure out what's going on. She's also pointing out that if they do do that, it's going to really limit how long these masks are gonna work for them. Like she's pointing out all these really good points. All Tetsu is hearing is, oh, we know where to look now and I know who to punch. So <laughs> after she lays all that out, he's like, all right, so let's go punch some people. But she kind of appreciates, she kind of admires that kind of focus that he's got. Like, yeah, he's missing some details, but he knows the overall goal. He got to the point really fast. So they get there and they see this kid. And it's another, it's a kid with like another, he's got a mask on too. He's like a face covered kid with a gun who's just talking a lot of ish, talking a lot of shit, this kid. And he's just like waving this gun and he's shooting at Tetsu Tetsu every so often. He's like, you're bulletproof. So it doesn't matter what I'm doing. And he's shooting like the mask off his face and just playing around with him. This kid is also understanding and learning that the more he attacks Tetsu Tetsu, the softer Tetsu Tetsu is becoming because he's not as focused and probably not able to breathe because now his mask is off. He's got his hand to cover everything that's happening right now. And so he's just talking a lot of ish and trying to go after Tetsu Tetsu. I guess he, this is, at no point does he realize there's somebody else here too. And then he finally does realize that his, he's, his pride is just like, off the roof. He's thinking he's so unbeatable. Uh, and Kendu manages to distract him enough for Tetsu Tetsu to come after him. And Tetsu Tetsu basically destroys this kid's mask. <laughs> like that's, and it works. It works. Not only does that mask break away, so now the kid is susceptible to his own fog. It also knocks him the hell out. So this kid gets to the ground, fog dissipates pretty quickly. Problem solved. Good job, Class 1B. So we got that. We also get uh, Bakugo and Todoroki. They face off against their own villain. There's a dude who's quirk. His teeth. His teeth become like jagged blades or like so something real crazy and super long. At first, they look like they're metal, like they're metal fence posts that are popping out of him that can cut through things. And he's real creepy. This is the dude who's got like the the jacket on him. He's got the straight jacket where his arms are tied. It turns out he don't need his arms. His cork comes out of his mouth. They literally grow from his teeth. So it gets mad, creepy, and scary. Um, but the message also is out. Deku realizes that they're after Bakugo. He figured that out in the episode prior. Also, Eraserhead realized one of these kids is the, the reason that these villains are here. They're trying to get one of the kids. 
So uh, Deku manages to get to the cats and manages to talk to the girl who's got the psychic ability to warn Bakugo. They are after you. This is why they're here. Everybody be aware. Bakugo, try not to be by yourself. I know Deku knows that it's Bakugo. He's not going to be like, oh, well, let me be reasonable and try not to <laughs> get caught. He's immediately like, fuck everybody. I got this. No one's taking me without my sesso. Blah, 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 blah. He's even got a point, part in there where he's like, I know that that message is because of Deku. I know it is. And that pisses me off even more because it's Bakugo. He just like, that's how he lives. So uh, Todoroki is like trying to like really structure what's going on because he's got this kid on his back. They know that Bak he knows Bakugo can't go full crazy because he's going to light fire to the forest. And that's going to kill everybody in a forest. They're dealing with a lot of things. So he's like, I need you to stay focused. <laughs> like, please don't use these explosions. And Bakugou is just going back at him like, I know this, yada, yada, yada. It, we know he doesn't really know this, but he's also getting really frustrated because he wants to do something. He's kind of limited in what he can do. And meanwhile, meanwhile Todoroki can totally use his, his eyesight to help try to ward off and block everything. So far, it's working. And then we quickly go to Deku, who's decided that he needs to also go help Bakugou because it's Deku. Mind you, this dude is broken. Like, he's beyond broken. That that arm, I don't even, I'm pretty sure. If they said we can't save it, I believe him. Because it's just like, ew, it's just goo at this point. It's just goo. He, like, a, there's a leg that's not working. He's just, like, trying to drag through this. Eraserhead makes a point to say that he understands that, that Deku is running off of adrenaline. Like, as soon as he calms down a little bit and that adrenaline starts to go down, He'll pass out. So <laughs> Deku manages to make it like a good way through the forest where he meets up with um, Shoji. Shoji is the guy who can make his appendages into other body parts. So he's got like, he's got a bunch of arms and they, they kind of work as like bat wings almost. And at the end of them, he can make it an eye or a mouth or an ear. And that's, that's what he does. Uh, when Deku comes on to him, one of those appendages is missing and it's just bleeding and it's just like oh god so, <laughs> so shoji sees him and scoops him up because deku's about to pass out he can't use his body and he explains what's going on you know deku's like oh my god you're hurt and he's like yeah some stuff went down uh and i'm also dealing with this other thing and we see we hear this roaring and we realize it's uh tokoyami He's in trouble because Dark Shadow is gone crazy. So they've laid out that Dark Shadow, which is his quirk, is like this almost like sentient entity that's part of him. It's literally a shadow. And in the dark, it gets way more powerful. But when it gets stronger like that, he loses control of Dark Shadow. It becomes its own thing. And they are in the middle of the dark. They're literally in the dark. So it's just like, oh, fuck. So it's just, it's, it's, so it's going crazy right now. It's roaring like a monster. It's all over the place. And Shoji's like, okay, so I know something's going down. I know that Bakugo is in trouble. I'm not sure how we're going to be able to get to everybody and help Tokoyami with Dark Shadow being as crazy as they are. And that's kind of where we leave it with to Tokoyami screaming for them to get out of there because he's going to kill them because he can't control Dark Shadow right now. And Deku like weighing everything. Like I still have to help Bakugo. I also need to help Tokoyami. I'm also broken. <laughs> so, so all of that, all of that's happening at the same time. And it's not, it wasn't a bad place to leave us. I was like, okay, so, okay. It's gonna still be interesting and crazy. I'm interested to see what happening next week. 
and it's it's and it also I'm a little more calm and not impatient because I've read the manga. So again, this is why I like spoilers. So I'm a little ahead of everything that's happening. I'm still enjoying my time. I'm also enjoying it at a better pace. So all of that, but still good. It was very action packed with this episode. I'm excited to see how else they're going to take this, or at least show how else they're going to take this. Well, there's still quite a few of class. Uh, 1A and 1B that we haven't seen just yet. So hopefully we'll touch on them in this next episode, especially the girls. I'd love to see the girls and what they're doing. Uh, so yeah. So yeah, so we're going to see all that. And right after this, I'm going to be breaking down Dear White People. Dear White People Volume 2 dropped on Netflix. And this is going to be the last show that I cover. So it's going to be the big one right after this. So Dear White People, Volume 2, dropped on Netflix this Friday. And whoo, they do a good job. So in case you did not know, Dear White People uh, is actually a series version of the film that dropped. And uh, the film, when it dropped, also shook a lot of feathers when it came out. Because, you know, I mean, it's titled Dear White People. And the whole premise around it, it are basically these kids in college there are these black kids in a college that's mostly for white people it's an ivy league school and their feelings about how they're being represented in the world at this school and just it's a frank conversation about what's going on in the black community as a whole it's very interesting and very dissective and i love that on the surface it looks like it's just going to be about a bunch of angry black kids telling off white people when that's not what it's about at all, at all. So I liked that. I, I liked that it sets up, it, it kind of, it kind of like really lives in that preconception in order to break it down and completely shatter it by the time you're done watching the movie and the TV series. So um, some people I've talked to, feel like the movie did a better job than the TV series because, well, A, they got the whole scope of things in like an hour and a half to two hours. And some people feel like the movie, although it had like a a, a good start to it, was felt a little rushed because they only had an hour and a half to two hours to dive into everything. And so the series has really taken off. It's been doing a really good job. Of course, there's been a lot of backlash because some people feel a way about the title or the or the views that they are pushing but uh whatever so <laughs> i like the show i really appreciate the show because i love that they give this voice to a lot of the black community and don't frame it in this stereotype of like everybody black has this particular experience and instead they open it up and it's completely varied and all over the place and wonderful so i really appreciate for what it does with that. And volume two is no exception. Volume one did a great job. Justin Simeon, who's the creator and writer for this, great job, did a great job with the second season. They really dove into a lot of things. Um, and basically I'm just gonna go over the characters that are my favorite, so here we go. So we're gonna talk about Lionel. Lionel is a character from the show. He is the character that's trying to be a writer. He is a nerd, he's kind of, a neurotic nerd and, 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 and he's he's very introverted and this college experience for him is a way for him to like kind of really live in his truth like he's been a closeted gay person for for a little bit and he comes out 
Um, well, maybe he had already been out, but it's more apparent that he's out in university because I don't think he was able to do too much in high school because, you know, high school. So he's in college. He's an out gay student. He's uh, doing his writing. He's very perspective, uh, perspective. He's picking up on a lot of things around him. He's pers perceptive. That's the word. There we go. He's very perceptive about what's going on around him. Um, of course, this is after the fallout of him writing, was it the Tribune or some paper? He's writing for some school paper and uh, he decided to basically go tap into this story about some of the people that are helping to fund the school and just put it out there and uh, against the wishes of his editor, but he did it anyway. And how that ended for him was that he got a kiss from his editor and he got his story pushed. And he kind of made a name for himself while also informing everybody about what was going on. And that was the forced integration of AP, which is the basically the black house. This is like the only kind of safe space that a lot of these kids have uh, in this like almost all white school. So Lionel is there. We pick up with Lionel and uh, he's kind of juggling a lot of things at the same time. He's still trying to write. He's still trying to figure out a way to do that. He's trying to figure out what's going on with his editor, like what exactly is happening between them because you know they had that kiss but they haven't really said anything since that kiss and it's been a little bit since everything went down so he's like are we together are we seeing each other like what are we doing and they have they haven't kissed since then so he's like i don't i don't know what the, what's going on so there's that um and a, a lot of it is his, his for me my takeaway was his romance romantic life he was like really trying to find someone to be with. And he thought that was going to be Silvio, who was his editor. There's this whole uh, episode he gets where he's supposed to have a date with Silvio or what he thinks is a date with Silvio. And by the time Silvio shows up, he's just like already drunk and passed out. Turns out it's the same night as Pride for the school. And uh, he ends up like touring these Pride parties with Silvio. Silvio phrase, frames it like, oh, well, we're going to hang out and I'm going to take you to these parties. But every time he takes him to a party, he like disappears entirely. Like it just goes away and he can't figure out what exactly is happening. But in the meanwhile, he's meeting all these people and they touch on a lot of topics for Lionel. Like uh, I want to say the first party he goes to uh, is other fellow writers and they're real petty. They're real petty. And, but they show him a lot of things. They show him like a lot of the typecasting that happens, especially within their own community right there, the gay, the really a gay white community. And, um, you know, what he'd be faced with if he had stick around that particular area. He sees one other black kid at this party and he kind of, this black kid kind of smiles at him and he walks over to, to talk with him and they exchange names. And this kid makes it clear that he doesn't date other black people and leaves and then you know poor lionel's like what the fuck so and uh, you know and that's something that happens a lot in real life gay or straight that's something that happens a lot and i like that they touched on that too but also touch on the fact that lionel's pool of finding like this this kind of like romantic partner it's getting smaller and smaller by the minute so they leave that party they go to another party i want to say it's the party with the dj there's a dj called dj dj because reasons. So they go there and it was my favorite one because uh, Kid Fury was there. So Kid Fury is co-host of The Read, legend. 
And we saw in the trailer, him po he popped up next to Tajik Hall. And I'm so sorry. I don't know who the other person is on that couch. I'm sure also there's legendary statuses around him. But I recognized Kid Fury faster than I recognized Tajik Hall. And I was like, ah, I'm super excited that they were even in the episode. So it was super cute. And I will come back to that because it's another point. So he hits that party and Sylvia's still being weird. And he hits another party with like theater kids. And Sylvia's still being weird, but he also meets this other guy. Oh, I know, I know. And now I don't even remember what that dude's name is. Something, something. But he meets another, another cute boy. And they kind of hit it off. They're both awkward. They're both, they're both a little introverted. And they kind of hit it off a little bit. They exchange numbers and this kid becomes his romantic interest. Unfortunately, that seems to fall apart on him because after like really getting close to this kid and, and having some firsts with this kid, he realizes um, even though him and this guy really like each other, this guy has a different perspective of what they mean to each other. So he's thinking boyfriend, monogamous relationship. And unfortunately, the boyfriend is thinking, well, I mean, like we hang out together, but we can sleep with whoever like that's, that's his take. And he's like, no. So we get that for poor Lionel. Also, he is behind figuring out uh, some of the huge secrets that are happening on campus. There's a huge alt-right movement because it's parroting every day. Uh, there's a guy on Twitter who's just been attacking like, I guess all these, like what they feel are like liberal speakers, mostly Sam. They're going after Sam because she's she's a big talker about what's happening in the black community, especially on campus and the black experience in whole. And uh, this alt-right psycho is just going in on her and like really getting underhanded with shit as he's trying to take her down. And Lionel figures out who it is. And it's Silvio. And... He's just, he gets, in that moment, he's just shattered. And I'm shattered with him. You're just like, what the fuck? Like, what's your problem? Like some of the points Silvio is making, I can kind of understand. Like he talks about how like he doesn't feel it's a free space anymore for everybody to share their ideas. And he doesn't feel that people are taking those same opinions with the same reverence as they are with Sam's. Like you're either full liberal or you're nothing. Like they're not listening to anything else. So that's why they need to have this crazy extreme voice right now in order to get that heard and if it wasn't you know touted around the fact that this is completely secure secured around anti-blackness racism and a bunch of other terrible things i'd understand but it was ugh, it was just heartbreaking especially when i go after sam and her mom like i get oh it gets real dirty so we see that breakdown and to Silvio's credit, he just kind of stands up in his shit. He's like, yeah, I said it. I did it. I know you're going to run a story on it. I'm, I am going to put my name and face to it. Fine. I'm in. And he does. And he becomes like the face of the move of the alt-right movement. And I even like the part where they played on the fact that they were excited that another person of color was also feeling the same way. They're like, we really feel like it justifies what we're doing. Because, you know, although it's just a bunch of you know racist white people talking right now. So... We see that. We see that go down. Um, and yeah, and then even uh, Lionel and Secret Societies. We find out Lionel is learning more and more about the Secret Societies around campus. And we keep seeing this particular insignia all over the place. It's a circle with an X in it. And you're just like, okay, so this is interesting. We'll find out what's going on. And we do. We eventually do. There's a Black Secret Society uh, group 
that not many people had heard of. It's like ultra, ultra secret, but Lionel and Sam kind of piece together what's going on. And at the end of that, we get this fantastic reveal. There's a narrator, a narrator for Dear White People. And it's voiced by Giancarlo Esposito, who also is a legend. Okay, let's put that out there. And he shows up as the person that's been in contact with them. He's the one that's been hoping that they figured out these clues so he can talk to them about this new society. And that's how it ends. That's how the season ends with that revelation that this narrator is also a part of their story. So that was really cool. It was really great to see that. Uh, also, Joelle. Joelle everything. She is the best friend of Sam. I don't remember if she had a huge part in Dear White People in the first season, other than being the bestie for Sam. I mean, they established uh, some arc with her, which was that uh, she... Well, basically was was Sam's sidekick. But also she was crushing on, uh, what's his face? I need names. But yes, the other guy, Reggie. Ha, name, got it. She was crushing on Reggie and Reggie was in love with Sam at the time. Of all of of season one, Reggie was in love with Sam. Um, And Joelle knew that, but she was kind of still hoping because, you know, that's how crushes work. But also, you know, for the most part, she's just kind of, was behind Sam for a lot of things that was happening. And we got like a standalone episode with Joelle, which is one of my favorite episodes. A, Joelle is nobody's fool. And I love that about her. Like as su- she's very much independent and makes up her own mind and, and isn't going to get told what to do by, by any one person. Like that's not going to happen. So we get that. Uh, we kick it off with her singing uh, at this club. It's a, I don't know what's happening. If it was like a talent show night or what, it was like a spoken word club. We get a weird spoken word speech at the beginning of it. And then she gets to go on stage and she sings Tyrone. I'm not going to lie. I absolutely sang along with her. Like that was, it's a good song. And she's trying to sing it to Reggie and Reggie is kind of paying attention, but he's also getting hit on by a lot of women, a lot of white women. So there's an arc with Reggie with his aftermath. He had a crazy story arc in the first season, which resulted in him nearly getting shot by a crazed security guard from campus and him kind of dealing with the aftermath of that. Like he's, he's constantly having nightmares and, and everybody's asking him if he's okay. And he's, he's just trying to be normal and um, also trying to figure out what's going on. So, I mean, like after him and Sam had their hookup or whatever, and it did not pan out the way he, he thought it would, he doesn't really know what to do with his feelings like right now. Like it's awkward with Sam, but it's not awkward because he still loves her. It's awkward because now he doesn't know what's going on with his feelings right now. So all of that's going on with Reggie and it taps into him not being totally present as Joelle sings this song. So she writes him off. She's like, and I'm done. Like, okay, I've liked you for a full year and nothing's happening. I'm never going to be that girl for you. So I'm going to just keep this as friends. That's fine. We get, we find out that Joelle was like, well, she she's amazing. This is what we find out. <laughs> we find out. She's a med student. She's pre-med right now. And she is killing it in her classes. She's keeping that grade point average like crazy high. And we see her comparing herself to like the guy that's second in class, who she automatically assumes is white. She's like, that's right. I'm keeping everybody on their toes. And uh, she realizes later after this guy introduces himself to her that he's actually a very handsome black man. So she's like, Oh, and he's saying like all the right things to her. He's calling her queen 
and just like he's you know he loves the fact that you know she's a real sister and saying all this stuff he's taking her on romantic as hell dates type of thing and showing her parts of campus that he she'd never ever seen uh they get a sweet they get some sweet moments where they kiss and stuff and it's real cute and then we start to see the veil move a little bit on this guy like he starts saying stuff that you're like okay like he'll he'll start going in on something and then he kind of holds back and you're like all right and that like slowly but surely starts to wear down where like he would start and stop and then he's now he's going a little bit more and then stopping and then eventually he just goes full crazy so and in between this like reggie's witnessing what's happening like she finally brings him around ap like she was real scared too because in the past she'd done that and either they dropped her to get try and get with sam or somebody else or they just felt like ap was too much and they we're trying to stick around. So this, she brings this guy to AP finally, and they're sitting watching a show, and he's just going in about everything. The gay people that he sees, the show they're watching, how everything is instrumental in taking down the black man. And she pieces together that this dude is a hotep. She pieces it together. And she's like, oh, fuck no. And she's just, she just gets so upset. And she tears him down, which was wonderful wonderful she really didn't need anybody to stand up for her she had it she was like oh god i'm done i'm done no i can't believe i didn't see these signs earlier i'm an idiot <laughs> like she's just like this is crazy and he's still going off and then reggie stands in for her and he's going in on reggie and it ends it culminates with reggie acting jealous and then punching that dude so it was interesting and joelle kind of sees that happening but also it's kind of like, is that really happening or is it because we're friends? So it ends with that for her, but it was it was awesome. I love that we got this standalone with Joelle. It was wonderful. I also loved Lena Waithe as P. Ninny. <laughs> There's a show within a show on this thing. And she plays a character called P. Ninny. P. Ninny is a rapper. And we first meet the character uh, in what is supposed to be like a reality show. It's very much a play on love and hip hop, and she's in like a feud with this girl singer. And she establishes like that she can't stand this girl and her work ethic or whatever. And she's like, everybody sees, I love guys, right? And she's talking about how, how, you know, she's really feeling the producer right now, who's this guy. She's like, I am in no way a lesbian. And then she gets into it with this girl, the, the girl singer that she's supposed to have this feud with. And her fighting just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> She's just like, I will eat strawberries up the small of your back. Like she's just giving her all these weird compliments on like just, just how she would rather be with her. It's hilarious. It's hysterical. They even have a part where they have, so they've been playing this, this kind of like satire on Ayana, fix your life kind of show where this lady just says the most randomest stuff and then like unzips her shirt so people can cry in her to her chest. Like which is, which is a standing point for Ayana, fix your life. It's hilarious. So we get to see all of that, but they also use it to kind of drive the point home on like these hypocrisies and, and, and different experiences that happen. And it's, it's wonderful. So we get all of that. And I just love that Lena Waithe, who's also a writer for that show, got to play a part in it and it's hysterical. Her comedic timing is the best, it's hysterical. It was great. And into the Kid Fury part that I was talking about. So Kid Fury, Kid Fury, Kid Fury, we got to Kid Fury, we got Todrick. When um, Lionel finally gets to a party and starts hanging around people that he probably could really hang with, they're hanging out with Sam in the, the sound booth. 
and they start talking about what's going on. I did not expect for Fury or Todrick to have as many lines as they did, but they get a nice scene where they're just going in about what's happening around them, but also pop culture. There's a whole bit in there where they go after Taylor Swift. So Lionel, they're like, well, Lionel, you're like, what, what do you like pop culture wise and, or pop music wise? And he's like, well, you know, I like a couple Taylor Swift songs. And Fury immediately goes, ah, oh, hell no. Like, <laughs> which is so true to his real life stance on Taylor Swift. I love that it was a back and forth between him and Todrick Hall. Because Todrick Hall was in a video of Taylor Swift's. And it was the video where she, well, you know what? I'm not a stan. So I don't know if it was the video where she first showcased her dance ability. But it was definitely the first video where people were like, is she copying Beyonce? Because she decided to have like a line of gaze around her as she danced. And Todrick was right next to her. And he took a lot of heat for being in that video. A lot of people felt a way about him being represented in that video. Taylor Swift and a lot of the black community is not on good terms, especially after that whole Nazi thing where they basically, basically kind of said that she's like their poster child and she didn't do a lot to create separation between that statement and herself. So I just find it funny that those two kind of go at it playfully. I don't know how they really feel about each other in real life. They may not be able to stand each other at all, but I just think they're both crazy talented and I'm so happy that they made it onto this show, especially Fury. He deserves, he deserves. So we got that lovely scene. And uh, also real quick, I mean, Sam, Sam for me is like one of the most problematic characters on that show, but I think that's because I, there's a lot about Sam that I also understand, especially with her struggles of her blackness versus her other and her whiteness. And I mean, I'm not half white, but I understand the, this identity crisis she's got about being mixed and what that means and what she's trying to stand for and how having that background doesn't necessarily help her with the voice and the message she's trying to promote. But she drives me crazy when she tries to shut it out completely. So we get to see the combination of that. And I was also really mad at her about the, the Gabe situation. She had this wonderful boyfriend who was trying to help her out. Misguided sometimes, yes, but also trying to help her out for the most part. And she just treated this dude like trash. She kept him a secret. She cheated on him. She was a hot mess. And he points this out. They get a lovely episode where they just hash it out. And he tells her exactly how he felt and what was going on and how like, yeah, he did a shitty thing, but she did a shitty thing. And like going back and forth. And it culminates in them like finding a middle ground, actually forgiving each other. And they get like this real passionate kiss. And as the episodes go on, we find out that they are kind of coming back together. They're kind of figuring out what it, what they mean to each other. And it's really sweet and really cute. And I like that Sam. I like vulnerable Sam. So that's it for Sam though. That's all I really got for her. That and that secret society thing she was doing with Lionel. Outside of that, she, girl's a hot mess. She's going through a lot of things. She, her dad passes. I absolutely cried during that episode. The funeral episode, hella good. So, but great show. I'm probably gonna watch it again. I binged that all Friday night. So I'm probably gonna watch it again. It's a great, great show full of fantastic qual quality content. And I can't wait for version three. We better get a volume three. So that's all I'm saying. I'm looking forward to it. And that's it. So that's going to wrap it up for me over here in the Curvy Geeky Fangirl podcast. This has run pretty long because I had a lot of things to say and I covered a lot of things. So 
going to get better at condensing this. But as always, you can find me all over the stuffs. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I've got that webpage, curvygeekyfangirl.com. That is being updated, guys. It's happening. I'm putting things out there. But if you need to hit me up, if you want to talk about anything I've covered, hit that hashtag CGF recaps, and we could discuss and share feels and whatnot. I put this out every Monday. So I will see you next Monday. Have a great week. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.